welcome everybody to our little podcast recording this evening, which is taking place in London, England. Our guest this evening is Catherine or Kat Beacom. I'm sure I've massacred your name on that note. It's very nice to meet you, so thank you very much for coming out this evening. So the way we start our podcast is usually by getting our guests to introduce themselves and how they got to where they are now. And I know you have a very eclectic background in terms of what you've studied and what you're currently working on. My undergraduate degree was in philosophy and theology at Oxford. And then I kind of became interested in psychology through that. And then I did a conversion to psychology, like a postgraduate diploma. And while I was doing that, I became really interested in kind of like the extremes of behaviour, offending behaviour in particular. And my first sort of assistant psychologist job was working in a young offenders prison. Um, and enjoy is probably the wrong word. <laughs> I found it really interesting. Yes. And so I went into the Masters in Forensic Psychology. Mm-hmm. After that, I worked on a randomised controlled trial looking at the effects of yoga and meditation with prisoners. Okay. After that, I went into clinical training, so that's kind of where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. So explain to us a little bit more about what forensic psychology is. For me, I'm thinking, is, was it the series Cracker? <laughs> yeah, so when I first started my Forensic Psychology Masters, the um, director of the course said, if you're coming here thinking that you're going to be a profiler mm-hmm. and you're going to work for the police, like, just leave, because <laughs> it's not like that. A lot of sort of forensic psychology work is around reducing the risk of reoffending. So before I started clinical training, I also got a place on the a top-up doctorate in forensic psychology, which I turned down for clinical. And I think for me, the reason was that I'm more interested in kind of working with people to reduce their psychological distress rather than specifically trying to reduce the risk of their reoffending. Yeah. Per se. Who are the people that you're currently working with? Do I work in a specialist trauma service ah, at the moment? Okay. Yeah, so I'm just coming towards the end of my training. I qualify mm-hmm. in September. Okay. Um, so the research that I've been working on over the last couple of years has been um, kind of nothing to do with offenders and kind see. Of to do with dogs. Right. Oh, uh, yes. I was reading yeah. up on this. So is this the PTSD stuff? Yeah. Doing? So it's, um, my other interest, aside from sort of um, offenders, is PTSD. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of drawn towards sort of exploratory studies. So the yoga meditation with prisoners study was the first sort of um, randomised controlled trial in this country with, with male prisoners. Mm-hmm. And my uh, PTSD dog study is, um, as far as I'm aware, sort of, first kind of exploratory IPA study mm-hmm. looking at the role of dog ownership and recovery from PTSD. So I guess I'm kind of interested in the kind of um, slightly unusual things that might be an adjunct to sort of normal, I guess, or regular treatment. Yeah. I think this is actually something that's been brought up in the US for vets that are coming yes. back. And it's, yeah. it's hugely beneficial. At least this is what people are saying. So yeah. how much truth is there to that? There's so much anecdotal evidence about the benefits of it. So when I started um, looking into it, I did a systematic review of the literature, and there was hardly anything out there in terms of quantitative studies looking at the effects of um, animal-assisted therapy or, or dog ownership on um, managing symptoms of PTSD. Mm-hmm. So I only found two studies that met my... Um, inclusion criteria but the US um, I think it's called the US Army Medical Journal something like mm-hmm. that devoted an entire issue to dog assisted sort of therapy and military medicine but none of the studies relating to PTSD um, were anything other than sort of observational or anecdotal I see so there's so much sort of case well not even case study kind of descriptive accounts 
of benefits, but really nothing out there that was empirical. I found one study that was like a content analysis, um, but it didn't really include any accounts from actual veterans. It was more from journalist oh. accounts. Okay, that's a bit bizarre. <laughs> yeah, so in my study, I interviewed people. Um, a couple of my participants brought their dogs along mm-hmm. and did sort of an in-depth IPA study into the role in which sort of the role their dog has in relation to their recovery. Okay. Yeah. So just so we know, what does IPA mean? Oh, interpretive phenomenon. Phenomenological analysis. (laughs) That's why we call it IPA. Yeah, just so people don't confuse it with an India Pale (laughs) I'd also um, would like to take my dog research further. Uh So um, I'm interested in doing sort of a case study series looking at the impact of, say, having a dog and then having a dog that is specifically trained to do things that we think will help to manage symptoms of PTSD. Okay. So the the dogs that the soldiers get, are they actually trained Mm. or do they? Yeah, so in the US a lot of the initiatives are around um, providing veterans with dogs that have specific training to help them manage their symptoms of PTSD. So for instance, the dog might be trained to um, carry out a parameter search of a building, the dog might be trained to remind them to take medication, the dog might be trained to help ground them when they're having flashbacks or dissociating. Now, it takes a lot of money to train the dogs, which mm-hmm. means that not everyone that wants one can have one. And the emphasis is very much on veterans with PTSD, not on civilians who also yep. have PTSD. So in my study, what was interesting, and obviously it's just an exploratory, small-scale, qualitative study, but still sort of interesting in the sense that my participants, the ones who are civilians, also the ones who are military as well, experience that their untrained dog seem to do naturally the kind of behaviours that these dogs are being trained to do Mm -hmm. Um, so they were waking them from nightmares they were grounding them when they were dissociating Um, other practical things like obviously if you walk the dog more you're getting out of the house that can help with improving mood and reducing avoidance Mm -hmm. but the specific things around grounding them when they're dissociating is interesting in the sense that it kind of seemed like within the context of a really strong bond with a pet that we don't necessarily have to train a dog to do these things. The dog may kind of almost intuitively do it, or people mm-hmm. may naturalistically use their dogs to help ground themselves. Yep. So it kind of, I guess, adds to a kind of training debate over yeah. do we necessarily have to spend thousands of thousands of pounds on training these dogs? Mm-hmm. Perhaps people with PTSD that already have a dog could gain benefit, therapeutic benefit from the dog that they already have. Yep. And that's something that, you know, I wonder if clinicians who have clients who have dogs could explore with their clients around who what role the dog has because I think often we kind of undervalue the role of pets in mental health and kind yeah. of think that you know they're nothing much at all but for some people it can be the major relationship in their life. So presumably before this was when you were doing the work with the young offenders? Yeah so um, when I worked with young offenders I was facilitating an offending behaviour programme mm-hmm. called the Thinking Skills Programme so it aims to sort of enhance sort of the development of cognitive skills and the idea is that this will help to reduce reoffending, to improve people's sort of self-control um, and their emotional regulation. Yep. And then I did research interviews with young offenders again when we were doing the yoga and meditation in prison study because we did it across seven prisons. Some of them were sex offenders, some of them were lifers and we also went to a, a women's prison as well. So it was quite a range of different prisoners that took part. Okay. 
And so what is the upshot from this meditation? Because I think <laughs> this, is, this is a bone of contention, right? Everybody um, has this idea that meditation is good for you. It doesn't matter what your background is or who you are, whether you're unwell, that doing meditation is going to hugely improve your state of mind. And I, I think there have also been studies claiming that there are physiological benefits, like it reduces blood pressure and so on. Um, so which of these things are... Let's say well-documented rather than true. Okay. <laughs> so you're right, like meditation, especially mindfulness, is seen often seen as a panacea, kind of a cure-all in the book that I co-wrote recently, we call it, sort of refer to it like as a Buddha pill. Uh-huh. So it's seen as kind of a natural pill without any kind of negative side effects and a cure-all for modern problems, so alleviating depression, anxiety and so on. It was mainly meant to be a book looking at the potential of meditation to bring about not only kind of reduction in psychological symptoms, but also, you know, possibly as a kind of way for sort of personal transformation on a bigger level. And the idea for the book came out of our study looking at the effects of yoga and meditation with prisoners. Because we kind of thought there was a good story there. It was, um, we got quite a lot of media interest um, when the study was published. And we started writing the book thinking that we were writing a book about the benefits Mm -hmm. but when we looked at sort of the last 45 years of research from sort of the early transcendental meditation studies through to more recent mindfulness studies we realized that the evidence really isn't as conclusive or consistent as media reports would have us believe and actually you know there there is sort of um, case study evidence historical evidence for adverse effects of meditation and all of this stuff kind of goes under the radar. And when we talk about it, it's not to sort of scaremonger. It's not to mm-hmm. like put people off doing it. But it's, I guess, to challenge the view in the media, which seems quite skewed, that meditation is definitely going to lead to benefit for every single person. Yeah. I suppose it's much like any treatment for anything. Yeah. I mean, there are always going to be the people for whom it's not beneficial and, in fact, it's damaging. Absolutely. But some people really struggle, I think, with the idea that it could be damaging, yes. so, um, or that it might not be this kind of smooth ride for everyone, or it might not be beneficial for everyone. I think um, there are some people who really cling very strongly to the idea that mm-hmm. you know this is what we we all should do. You know, yeah. it should be taught in schools. Yeah. Um, if you know the Dalai Lama quote around, you know, if every eight-year-old was taught meditation, the world would be without violence. Mm-hmm. But yet, neglecting the fact that historically meditation has been used to kind of make better soldiers. Yeah, it's an interesting oversight. I yeah, guess. I think you know meditation can enhance what's already there. So if what's there is kind of some distress, then it may bring that up to the surface. And it's not that that is necessarily a bad thing, but people might not be expecting that and mm-hmm. they might not be ready to deal with that at that particular time. Yeah. They might not have the support around them. So, you know, when you have psychological therapy, often things are going to come up for you that are distressing, but you're doing it with the support of a therapist. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're at home on your own doing a mindfulness practice and stuff comes up for you, you might not have that support network. Yeah. And because of the way that mindfulness is portrayed in the media, you also really might not be expecting that at all. Yeah. So it could come completely out of the blue. Um, I think as well, um, being aware that sort of mindfulness is a kind of a, an effective brand name, a product that's being sold to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are making a lot of money from mindfulness. Absolutely. Um, so again, I guess, I guess what we're trying to encourage in the book is a healthy degree of scepticism mm-hmm. towards what 
we read in the media and even sort of off the back of the book stuff that's come out in the media about our book has really opened my eyes to the way in which sort of science can be misrepresented um, and the way in which you know I discovered perhaps I should have known this that you know often journalists don't even get to write their own headlines so you can have like a, a discussion interview with a, a journalist about your research and mm-hmm. then what actually comes out has some kind of really controversial headline of mindfulness there's no evidence for effectiveness which is never yes. anything that I said or they said and when I queried it with the journalist they said oh, I didn't write it wow that's, that's interesting <laughs> yeah. and unfortunate by the sounds <laughs> of it um, so if it's not going to kind of impinge on anything that you're currently doing what do you see coming up for you in terms of your future work and research Something that's sort of coming up um, is um, Miguel Farias, who I wrote the Buddha film with, mm-hmm. um, is interested in doing a systematic review into adverse effects of meditation, and that's something I may collaborate with him on. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so since we have some of our friends gathered with us today, I'm going to let them ask some questions. So coming from someone who has really uh, very little understanding of meditation, is there more than one type of meditation? The kind that we use within our study, because we focus mainly on yoga, was a kind of breath-focused meditation. So, you know, there's lots of different types, from like transcendental meditation where you use a mantra, um, through to mindfulness, which has its roots in kind of Buddhist meditation. Um, there's also kind of all these new kinds of modern meditation coming up. Um, I've heard of, I'm not going to advertise any of them actually, because <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with them. But there's loads of different kinds of meditations. From the point of view of what you're studying, is there any difference in terms of the impact on patients and whether they actually might be more or less harmful, more or less effective? Um, I think it's hard to compare because a lot of the transcendental meditation studies were obviously done like in the 70s, whereas now the emphasis is very much on mindfulness. And that seems to be where you know most of the research is going. I don't know. I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done in terms of, you know, what is, say the active ingredient in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy because there's models as to how mindfulness works but we're still not really sure like the evidence isn't conclusive so there was a really rigorous beautifully designed study randomized controlled trial um, by Mark Williams and his team last year a dismantling trial and they were trying to find out you know is it the mindfulness meditation that is the thing that really makes the difference in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy so they compared people doing MBCT to people doing cognitive psychoeducation, which was the same as MBCT apart from no meditation, and then to treatment as usual. But what they actually found, there was no significant differences between groups in terms of preventing relapse of depression between any of the groups. So whether you did MBCT or you did it without the mindfulness or you just went to see your GP every couple of weeks Mm -hmm. there wasn't any difference apart from if you had a history of childhood trauma and abuse so not to say things like you know it doesn't mean mindfulness helps only the traumatized but it really points to individual differences I think and there's a lot more we need to know about who does mindfulness help when will it help them how much you need to do you know you might feel really good while you're doing it but what about the other 23 hours of the day Mm -hmm. how much is it possible to separate the the religious aspect of of meditation which people often gloss over in in the western world because we like to fetishize things that are are interesting and take bits out of them but obviously you know meditation has a, a long religious history so is there is there a cost associated with separating it out? Do people do it? And is that 
to fully understand it? Are they missing that component of it? What, what is your take on that? So we discussed this in, in some detail in our book. A lot of mindfulness advocates would say it's, it's entirely secular, you know, it's like this shiny new secular thing. It's debatable as to whether you can fully strip the Buddhism from it. It, it has its roots in Buddhist meditation. Now, I don't see that as a bad thing, but... You know whether you can fully separate it, I'm not sure. There's a study we talk about in the book that shows that when you meditate, an effect was that you became more spiritual, <laughs> whether or not you actually wanted to, and that in fact that increase in spirituality was linked to benefit. As part of the research for the book, went to a Buddhist monastery where we spoke to a monk who said in effect that you know he saw that mindfulness was basically an instruction to Buddhism, but also a lot of Buddhists that critique modern modern mindfulness because they say that it really limits the scope of what it can do. We're taking it out of context, and, and actually this isn't true mindfulness. Um, this is something very watered down. Is the, is the idea then if, if you were a religious person that meditation might have a different impact on you? Well, I think what's interesting is sort of what are you really looking to get from meditation? I think that's something that perhaps people should think about before they do it, and also to be aware that you know, meditation wasn't designed to make us happier. That's something that we've kind of made up recently. That's not the aim in either kind of the Buddhist or the Hindu roots of it. And it also isn't designed to relax us. And a lot of people find that they feel relaxed from doing mindfulness, but that isn't the aim of it. So I think that, you know, people, when they are thinking of, you know, should I meditate or not? Should I try mindfulness or not? Think about what it is that you want to get. Think about what's going on for you at the time. Would you be okay if something difficult came up for you? doesn't mean that it, you know you did it wrong it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing but just to be aware of sort of where you're at in your life and what you're hoping to get from it one of the studies we looked at in the book was a survey of meditators experiences that found that um, about 60% of people that went on sort of meditation retreats experienced at least one negative effect and 7% experienced significant negative effects mm-hmm. um, now doing 20 minutes of mindfulness meditation a day is unlikely to produce you know the kinds of effects you might get from doing six hours of meditation but then again perhaps you're also less likely to experience some of the benefits from that really small amount so um, yeah I think it's important to think about what it is you're really looking to get from it um, and I guess one of the things that we wanted to encourage from the book was sensible discussion of that and perhaps for people to adjust their expectations from you know what we might imagine we'll get from the media that you know we just meditate 20 minutes a day for eight weeks and we're going to reduce our chance of you know developing depression again we're going to be happier more relaxed calmer better focused at work and all of these things mm-hmm. um that could happen but the likelihood also is that it may not um so mindfulness you know works really well for some people it works less well for others and for, for some it may not work at all and for others they may even experience negative effects well, I was really trying to ask and this might actually answer some of it is, do you actually have to have a strong belief in the power of meditation for meditation to work for you? <laughs> that's really interesting and I think it's something that isn't really talked about with some of the scientific research it's about adjusting for participants' expectations so if you do something that you think is going to help you you're much more likely to report in your self-report measures that it did. And most studies don't adjust for this. So, you know, when we find that people are reporting these benefits, okay, but, you know, what was controlled for? Did they ask people about the things that they expected to get from this at the start? And most of the times they don't. And I think there are quite a lot of flaws with meditation research. So um, often, you know, we're comparing mindfulness to, say, doing nothing. Now, 
you know, doing anything is often going to work better than doing nothing. So again, when I talk about the uh, Williams study, what I liked about that was they had an active control group doing something really similar to the, you know, the intervention that we're studying. I think, um, you know, often people, when they expect to get something from it, are likely to report that they did. So you, you brought a book on, on the impact of meditation. Is, is that a fair description of what the book is about? Uh, a lot of scientists are very passionate about what they do, but most of us don't really write books. <laughs> what drove you is, What drove you to is you think is a very a pertinent uh, sort of topic that uh, is really underreported and, and might have a serious impact on public health? Or what was the driving force? Yeah, the, the driving force initially was the yoga and meditation prison study. And I think because it was so new and there hadn't really been like a, a sort of a, a randomized controlled trial in this country done with prisoners, um, we felt like it was something new and it was something interesting. And the findings of that study were that it improved mood, it reduced stress, it reduced psychological distress. But what we didn't find was that it didn't seem to have any impact on aggression mm-hmm. or interpersonal behavior. So the way that prisoners behave towards each other or prison staff. And that was a surprise because we kind of thought that it would. Um, and we started writing the book, sort of focusing on this. And as we kind of got into the literature, our interest in it broadened out to the way in which you know yoga and meditation might have the potential to bring about change in all of us. But really, it was when we kind of um, got onto the chapter about adverse effects, we kind of thought we had something here which mm-hmm. really people weren't talking about, apart from Willoughby Britton um, at Brown University, who's got some really interesting stuff. Ed. But she's... Um, been sort of trying to kind of get together these experiences that people have had of these adverse effects and I think that I'm interested in how sort of science is portrayed in the media and the impression I get is that it is really skewed and it is all about benefit and the benefits kind of inflated and studies that don't find benefit just go under the radar and I think we wanted to kind of bring that to the fore and it's not an anti-meditation book we think there is a lot of benefit of meditation and mindfulness, we just think that there's another side to the story as well, and you know, there is a range of effects. It's not just that it, you know, prevents relapse of depression, and the evidence is not conclusive for that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted to encourage sensible debate around the yeah. topic. You said something that's really, really interesting. You said a lot of things that are interesting. <laughs> I should qualify that. But what I did find interesting is that a lot of the studies that were done were done sans controls. So they were done comparing meditation, mindfulness to absolutely nothing. Well, treatment as usual. Yeah, passive. exactly. Now, that in most branches of science would be considered fairly deplorable conduct. So what I'm interested in, is, and I know psychology gets a bum rep sometimes for, for poor reproducibility, and I know there's a big movement in psychology to improve that. But when you read through the literature, did that not strike you as, oh God, a lot of the psychological literature that's been published is really bloody awful. <laughs> I guess when you're doing kind of new research, first of all, you've got to prove that something works better than nothing. So in our own study, we did have just a passive control group, but that's because there hadn't been another randomized control trial done in the area. Now, if there was another one done, you know, they should then be comparing it to doing something else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, something else. Now, there has been um, some studies which have tried to create, like, a, well, this one guy tried to create a meditation placebo. Yes, <laughs> I was wondering about that, actually, because you've been talking about controlled trials. Yeah. How does that work? So he created, it was really clever, he came up with a manual, like a really long manual, and um, he had participants who were doing meditation and people who were doing 
the placebo meditation. And the placebo meditation was basically sitting in a chair and doing nothing. Right. <laughs> right? Okay. But there was a manual about sort of, you know, the, the rationale behind it. And the outcome of the study was sort of no difference between the two groups. Now, does meditation work better than relaxation? Meditation advocates would say that it does. I'm unconvinced by the evidence that necessarily it does. I think that there is a need for better controlled studies with active control groups that are really comparing meditation to doing something else other than to treatment as usual and doing nothing. Um, is there any particular group of people where meditation seems working better than others? Like, uh, have you noticed any difference between male and female? Or uh, is there a specific age group? Well, if I refer back to the uh, Mark Williams study that found that it was only people who'd experienced childhood trauma and abuse that um, had, there was an advantage for doing MPCT, that might indicate that for people who have had those experiences that there's something about mindfulness that might be more beneficial but it would be hard to sort of say something conclusive on the basis of, of that study I think again there's a need for more research sort of who does it work for better um, you know how much they need to do what kind of type of meditation mindfulness so there's still a lot of unanswered questions so do you have a view on what, how much meditation and what sort of meditation you do need to do to have those beneficial effects It's hard to say. Um, there's a, um, a Swami who we interviewed um, for the book called Swami Ambikananda. One of the things she sort of has said is that you could meditate for like 23 hours a day, but then that one hour of the day, you know, you may still have all your old feelings, all the old problems that you had before. So, you know, when you're meditating or when you're doing mindfulness, you might feel really calm and really at peace and really focused, but what about the rest of the time? Now, for some people, they may find that the effect lasts longer, and for others it may not so if we liken it to this kind of Buddha pill I think there's still a lot of questions as to how much do you need to take mm -hmm. how long do the effects last and again with individual differences I don't think there is a kind of a blanket rule so some people might derive quite a lot of benefit from 20 minutes a day for other people you know it might require hours a day to get the same effect so that's obviously quite a difficult message to get across in the media <laughs> correct? because that's actually quite a complicated story whereas a nice neat succinct story is, will sell a lot better in newspapers and magazines so how are you going to try and get that complete message across in a way that people take the full story rather than the snippets that people want that is actually quite a challenge because as soon as you speak out something against the kind of pervasive message in the media of meditation for everyone and we start saying actually maybe not for everyone I guess we find ourselves kind of almost pushed into a corner of being like these anti-meditation people which which we're really not and I've had a lot of emails from people who have perhaps read some media articles where they've kind of really pushed on the kind of one chapter of the book that looks at adverse effects and have kind of painted a picture of we're trying to denigrate meditation, which we're really not at all. We're trying to give kind of the full picture. So positive effects, yes, but also not for everyone and also the potential for adverse effects. I think it's important, I guess, when I'm talking about it in the media to try and get home that message that, that I'm not anti-meditation. I'm just trying to encourage sensible debate and to open people's eyes to the fact that what we read about in the media is not the whole of the scientific research. That Williams study, which I'm mentioning yet again, because it was such a good study, but it really just completely went under the radar because it wasn't saying what people wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage people to kind of try and seek out more information. But it's hard, isn't it? Because 
I guess, you know, if you're not a scientist, you don't have access to um, scientific databases, perhaps, and some articles are going to be open access, but others are not. Even if you read them, you might not necessarily quite get it, because we don't always write in a way that is accessible. We've had emails from people saying that they were surprised by how balanced it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, open access is a whole other thing that we could, and probably should, devote uh, an entire podcast to. Because I think a lot of people still don't understand how the publication of literature within science actually works. And the fact that the majority of it is closed off to them. So this is something we need to work on as well. I think one really good thing is um, the conversation website. So again, that is something that you know everyone can sort of read and access and quite a lot of interesting scientific discussion going on we've got an article up on that at the moment okay. very good <laughs> well thank you again so much for meeting with us before you leave we'll give you one of our little pint glasses which oh. is a little bit sad since I understand you don't actually drink pints well, I'm, I'm but... I will now Yay. Um, I did once in Ireland I was saying earlier I, had, I was in the Guinness factory and I had well, about a third of a pint of Guinness. (laughs) But I will now. I mean, getting into a prison, first of all, is really difficult. But 
the major challenge I found doing the research was something I completely didn't anticipate, which was just finding a room in which to do the interview. So, you know, unlike our sort of university research where, you know, you've got your interview rooms and it's already nice and easy, interview rooms in prisons are few and far between. So over the course of our research, where I interviewed between sort of 100, 150 um, prisoners, I interviewed anywhere where the prison staff could find me in order that we could get the interviews that we needed. So that was um, chapels, um, education, chaplain's offices, uh, gyms, and on one occasion, a storage room for gym kits. <laughs> Which was really not ideal. Um, with a prison officer like nervously looking through this tiny window at me to check that I was okay. So yeah, I think sort of prison research, not glamorous, but definitely necessary. been listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at two scis facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in